What I want to talk to you about this morning from this Bible story we're going to look at is the competing voices that take place in our life. So whether that's voices from the outside, people telling you things, or for most of us, it's probably voices on the inside that are telling you things that you're like, should I listen to this? Should I buy into this? Is this something that I really need or not? And I'm going to tell you one of my favorite stories in the Bible. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to 2 Kings chapter 18. This is one of my favorite stories in the Bible, and I, I really hadn't heard anybody teach on this particular story for a long time. And as I was on a Bible reading plan several months ago, I began reading this story, and I thought, man, there is so much here. There's so much in this story about basically what we go through every single day. And what the Bible does a really amazing job of, if you're going to think about how to read stories in the Old Testament, one of the things that the Bible does that is so amazing is it takes the feelings and the temptations and the experiences that you have and it personifies them in characters. And then it shows you a template for how to deal with it. And that's what we're going to see today. We're going to see these characters that I'm going to introduce in a moment, Hezekiah and Isaiah and the Rob Shaka. And these are personifications. These characters are a historical event that has been able to speak for thousands of years because there are Rob Shakas in your life. There are Sennacheribs in your life. There are moments where what God is speaking in this story should be a warning to you or a sign to you about how he wants you to respond in the face of temptation. So every good story has a couple of characteristics. It's got a plot, it's got characters, and it's got trouble. And our story is no different. I want to introduce the characters to you. Look at 2 Kings chapter 18. We're going to meet our first character, Hezekiah. In the third year of Hosea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Now this, your ears should, should perk up. If you've read 1st and 2nd Kings, you should be like, something is different because of all the kings in 1st and 2nd Kings, there's only two or three that are good. And there are dozens of them that are bad. So immediately we know something's different about this guy. He did what was right in the eyes of of the Lord, according to all that David, his father, had done. He removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah, and he broke to pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it. It was called Nehushtan. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him. Wherever he went out, he prospered. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. He struck down the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory, from the watchtower to the fortified city. So we get a little character profile here of King Hezekiah. And I want to I point out a couple of things to you about this guy. So he says, the, the author tells us, this was a good king. So what we're going to get the indication of is, until proven otherwise, he was a good king. He followed the law. He did what his father David had done. So that's like saying to us in biblical terms, do what this guy did. He's a good king. 
And we get some more clues. He reunites worship for the first time since Solomon. He's a once in 400, 500 years kind of king. He follows God's commandments when it comes to worship, when it comes to ceremonies, when it comes to sacrifices. He reinstitutes what God had commanded them to do. The other thing that we get that is just so fascinating is in verse 4. So he says, he removed the high places and he broke to pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. Now this is reaching pretty deep into our biblical memory. This is like, do you remember VBS or do you remember Awana or Bible Bowl where Moses makes the bronze serpent and puts it up on the pole and it heals the people who are being bit by poisonous snakes. It's a great story in Numbers. Well, what had happened is they took that snake and they made a little shrine to it. And now for what, what's probably somewhere close to a thousand years, they have been worshiping this snake. Typical Israelite thing to do. Take a good gift of God, turn it into something bad. That's what they do all through the Old Testament. That's what we do today. I mean, it's human nature. So they've been worshiping this serpent. And so Hezekiah sees something wrong with this. He says, I'm going to get rid of this thing. So he crushes this idol and gets rid of it. But there's something more to it than that. Hezekiah, like his father David, like his father Adam, like his son Jesus, is a serpent crusher. Every time you see a snake in the Bible, it is immediately significant. Every time you see a snake, every time you see a serpent, you should be thinking of one storyline. Adam falls because of the temptation of a serpent. Jesus wins the people of God back by crushing the head of a serpent. That storyline runs through the entire Bible, from the first few pages of Genesis to the last few pages of Revelation. Snakes, serpents are always bad, and people who crush serpents are always good. Now, this is a little indicator of what's to come. You might have noticed the difference between the Bible and when it tells stories, and when you read like a novel is, in the Bible, there aren't that many details, it's pretty short, pretty to the point. They just take you along with the action, and then they get to the, the climax of the event. There's, there's not a lot of superfluous uh, stuff going on. And in fact, when you read your Bible, when you read the Old Testament, every detail is important. You've got you to gotta pay attention to every single detail. Nothing is there on accident. It's not just like he crushed the, he, he crushed the bronze serpent, just wanted you to know that. Now, this is going to come into play later in our story. There's a great principle of literature. Anton Chekhov said this. It's called his gun principle. He says, if there's a loaded gun in Act 1, you can expect it to be fired in Act 2. If there's a loaded gun in Act 1, expect it to be fired in Act 2. If there's a serpent in the beginning of the story, expect it to be crushed later in the story. We're going to see this. We've got this frame of who Hezekiah is. His name means God strengthens. God strengthens. Which is important for a king whose entire reign is characterized by opposition and weakness and illness and invasion. Our first character, Hezekiah, is going to show us what it's like to be strengthened by the Lord. Our second character, we're going to meet him later in the story, is the prophet Isaiah. Now, you probably know Isaiah from trying to get through his gigantic long book in the middle of the Old Testament. It's almost 70 chapters long. He is the premier prophet in the Old Testament. In fact, Jesus, Paul, John, Peter in the New Testament quote from Isaiah at length. 
He is the foundational writing of the prophets that comes to be in the New Testament. One of the commentators put it like this. The prophet Isaiah wants to show us more of God and more of ourselves than we've ever seen before. He wants us to know what it means to be saved. Do you have the courage to listen? We might as well. Our friends disappoint us. Our own good intentions let us down. Sooner or later, our very bodies will give out. But God has opened up a way for us to swim eternally in the ocean of God's love. Our part is to look beyond ourselves and stake everything on God who saves sinners. That's the perfect description of Isaiah's ministry. And the way we're going to see him function in this story is he is the voice of God amidst all the other voices. That's really the role of a prophet. We think a lot of times that prophets in the Old Testament exist to tell the future. Like they're oracles of some kind that come onto the scene and they predict droughts and, and they do that. But more often than not, what a prophet does is the prophet comes and reminds powerful people like the king, the truth of what God has spoken. A good way to think of prophets is instead of thinking of uh, foretellers or fortune tellers, think about prophets as foretellers. They're speaking the truth of God to people who might have forgotten it, who are having trouble to decide between the word of God and the word of somebody else. So Isaiah is going to come and speak that. So those are the good guys in this story. Now on to the bad guys. The second character, or the third character that we meet is named Sennacherib. And when we find Hezekiah in this story, we see that he's already in a lot of trouble. Look at verse 13 of chapter 18. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. Sennacherib has been on this campaign across, he's, he's up in the northeast of Israel and he wants to get down to Egypt. And this is, this is classic geopolitics in the Old Testament. Israel is right in the middle of powerful people who don't care anything about them, but will kill all their people to get to somebody else. So he wants to get to Egypt. And in order to do that, he has to conquer all of the cities that are on the east side of the Mediterranean, which belong to Israel. And he goes on this long campaign uh, conquering 40 cities, and Jerusalem is the last holdout. In fact, one of the interesting things about Sennacherib, he is the most powerful man in the world at this point. His empire is threatening to eclipse all of pretty much the known world at this point. And when we were in the British Museum last year, they have a whole exhibit on, on Sennacherib and his children because the Assyrian Empire was one of the first modern empires. It was unbelievably brutal. They have pictures etched into stone. They would have had a palace room just about the size of this one. And along the walls, they had chiseled into stone all the exploits of the king. And so you can walk around and you can see him on a lion hunt and he's killing these lions. You can see him being enthroned. And then there are these pieces of, of, of stone where you can see him impaling Israelites. There's this scene where the Israelite king is coming up to his throne and offering gifts. And then later you see them all in chains with hooks in their noses, marching away from Jerusalem. And this was a bad dude. The most powerful man in the world, Sennacherib. And an interesting thing about him, he married a Jewish woman. 
probably after this conquest, but he had some kind of fascination with the Jews. In fact, there's a prism in the British Museum called the Prison of Sennacherib, and he says on there, he recounts this campaign, and he says, I made Hezekiah a prisoner in Jerusalem, a royal residence like a bird shut up in a cage. So Sennacherib marches on Jerusalem, and he sends his messengers before him. It says he sends the tartan, he sends the Rabsaris, and then we get introduced to one of what I think is the most fascinating characters in the Bible. It says he also sent his Rabshaka to Jerusalem. Now, what is a Rabshaka? Well, the Rabshaka is a title. That's not this guy's actual name. We don't know what his name is. But it's a title for the court of Assyria. And what this person did was they were like an international diplomat for the king of Assyria. So this person was one of the most highly educated people in the court. And we're going to see that in a moment. He is unbelievably talented as a speaker. He also knows how to speak to to the Hebrew people in their own tongue. I mean, this guy is slick. He's educated. He's ruthless. He's international. He has a history of going and making treaties with people. And we see the Rob Shaka walk up to the walls of Jerusalem and begin to threaten the people of God. There's a Jewish legend, and, and there's, no, there's no necessary truth to this. I'm not saying, this is not in the Bible, but it does thicken the plot a little bit. There's a Jewish legend that maybe the Rabshakeh is the wayward son of Isaiah. Now that's worthy of like an Amazon Prime series or Netflix or something. That is, that is a juicy little plot detail. I don't think it's true, But wouldn't that be interesting if he was? So he walks up to the walls of Jerusalem and he begins to shout up to the people of God and we're going to see a showdown. And this showdown consists between voices. And what we're going to see in in chapter 18, verse 19, when the Rob Shaka comes up, he says, Say to Hezekiah, thus says the king of Assyria. And later we're going to see the prophet Isaiah say, Thus says the Lord. This is the battle. This is the showdown. The word of the most powerful man in the world and the word of God. And the question for all of us in this story, as you're reading this, you should be gripped with that tension of what voice are you going to listen to? What voice are you going to listen to? So we've got a battle on our hands. And the first thing is it's a battle of words. It's a battle of words. And and this is true in in our spiritual lives today. Most of the battles that you fight are not physical battles. Now, there are some. There are spiritual battles that manifest physically, but a lot of the battles that we fight as believers are battles of words. Somebody else's word versus God's word. Who are you going to believe? The word of the king of Assyria? The word of that uh, person? that said something to you that you can't get out of your head or the word of God, the word of what you've heard thousands of times in your head or what the word of God says. This is how it's always been. In the garden, this was the struggle. Do you remember? It wasn't a physical battle in the garden. It was a battle of words. So Eve is tempted by the serpent who doesn't coerce her physically. He coerces her verbally. He says, did God actually say, this. 
This is the battle that the Rob Shaka presents. And in fact, like I mentioned earlier, in the battle between the Rob Shaka and Hezekiah, it takes on this cosmic proportion because the Rob Shaka is a snake. He's a serpent. Listen to what he says. In verse 20, do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you've rebelled against me? Behold, you are trusting now in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff, which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. Such is the king of Egypt to all who trust him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar in Jerusalem? Come now, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses if you are even able on your part to set riders on them. How, how then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? Moreover, is it without the Lord that I've come up to this place to destroy it? Listen to this. The Lord said to me, go up to this land and destroy it. He's making some very persuasive arguments. And what he's doing is he's making contemporary arguments. One of the commentators on this says, in a, in a succession of argument using terror, ridicule, promises, slanted information, read that as fake news, logical proof of the futility of it all, and the Rob Shaka tries to break the defender's will to resist. In fact, I've just outlined six kinds of arguments that he's making. Number one, he disrespects them because of what they believe. Notice the disrespect. He doesn't say King Hezekiah, which would have been his title. He says Hezekiah, as if they're familiar with each other. Later, he says, I, I'm not going to read this because he gets a little PG-13 later, but he threatens them. He disrespects them by saying, you're really going to hold all these people up because in the end, they're going to be so hungry, they're going to be eating each other and their excrement. He is unbelievably disrespectful because of what these people believe. He intimidates them. There's a, there's a passage later on where the people say, hey, look at verse 26. There's a group from Hezekiah who've come out to treat with him. And he says, they say, please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. Don't speak in the language of Judah within the hearing of the people. And the Rothschild says, that's why I came. He's like, has the master said to me to speak these words to you and not the men sitting on the wall who are the ones that are going to be killed? He intimidates them. He urges them to get on the right side of history. Notice this argument that he makes. All the other kingdoms have fallen to Assyria. What makes you any different? Don't you want to be the people who escape from what's to come? Don't you want to be the people who look back and say, you know what, we made the right decision in compromising with Assyria. He urges them to be rational and pragmatic. He, he pretends like he's just presenting the facts. He presents himself as a student of religion. This is really interesting. He knows enough about the Israelites to make a religious argument to them. Notice what he says about Hezekiah. So one of the things Hezekiah did was he broke down the altars that Jeroboam had built in two poles of Israel and said, everybody's got to worship in Jerusalem. And what the Rob Shaka says is, don't you think God's going to be a little upset that you've been tearing down his altars? And the people are like, you know what? Maybe we were wrong about that. And look at what he says at the end. How can you be so sure that we're not doing what God has commanded us to do? 
You know what you think God has told you to do, but you can't say anything about what you think God has told me to do. Now, that's a contemporary argument. That one is still with us today. We'll get some examples in a minute. He mocks them. Finally, at the end, he blasphemes the living God. He says, maybe maybe the Lord told me, go up against this land and destroy it. How much of this sounds familiar to you? How many of these arguments are you thinking, you know what, that's, that's not an old argument. That's not just a biblical argument. That's not just a, a person in the Assyrian court making those arguments. I've heard that argument. I've felt that before as a Christian. I've been told some of those things. I've been made to feel intimidated and ashamed. I've, been, I, I've had people tell me that things I believe maybe God is calling them to something different. These are the same battles we're in every single day. This is the nature of temptation. From thousands of years ago to now to thousands of years in the future, this is the nature of what temptation looks like. It's a battle of words. Whose word are you going to believe? I want to take a moment and pause here before we begin to move through the rest of the story. And at your tables, I just want to give you a few minutes to unpack this. When's the last time you found yourself in a showdown of words? When's the last time you had two competing speakers in your life, in your heart, in your mind that you had to choose between the word of God and the word of somebody else? Take a moment at your tables, just unpack this a little bit, apply it to you. I think through how you found yourself in this battle. When's the last time you found yourself in a showdown of words? Share that at your tables for about three or four minutes and then we'll finish the story together. Okay, let's, let's keep moving. How many of you guys, when you start to think about this character, hopefully as you're seeing this, this, this guy is great. I mean, he is evil, but he is great as a character, this Rob Shack guy. How many of you guys have seen or read The Lord of the Rings? By a show of hands. A, a few of you? This character is the mouth of Sauron in that story. There is a character in there that J.R. Tolkien based off of this character because he is so clever. What he does is he takes, he escalates this from a battle of words, like we've been talking about, to something even deeper. Now, the second thing that he does is he makes it about a battle of promises. A battle of promises. Look at what he says in verse 28 of chapter 18. Then the Rob Shaka stood and called out in a loud voice to the language of Judah, hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you out of my hand. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, The Lord will surely deliver us, and this city will not be given into the hand of Assyria. Don't listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria. Listen to this promise. Make your peace with me and come out to me. Then each of you will eat from his own vine. Each one of you from his own fig tree. And each one of you will drink water from his own cistern until I come and take you away to a land like your own. A land of grain and wine. A land of bread and vineyards. A land of olive trees and honey. So that you may live and not die. What does that sound like? 
the promised land. That sounds exactly like the land that they are currently in, that God has promised to them. Now, in hindsight, this is a little bit easier to see, but I mean, we're not, you know, don't raise your hands on this. How many of you guys think that the king of Assyria is going to make good on his promises to the nation of Israel? Zero. There is no chance. He's, he says, you know what? If you guys would have peace with me, you, you could have your own land, you, a promised land that I would put you in. You know, from, from the city of Jerusalem, you can see on the horizon a couple of the other cities that they had conquered. It would have been possible in Israel to see the smoke coming up from the cities that they had just conquered. And here comes this guy and says, no, 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 no. If you treat with us, we'll give you your own land and your own vine. It's a battle of promises. Who is more likely to deliver on their promise? This guy or God? This guy or Hezekiah? And what he does is he's trying to undermine their confidence in what God has promised to them. God has promised this land to them. He promises here in a minute, through the words of Isaiah, he promises that he is going to deliver them from the most powerful military force in the world. Even though, as we saw earlier, they they don't even have 2,000 guys to put on horses much less any horses or any chariots or any field commanders. They have nothing to defend themselves with. So from an earthly perspective, the Rabshakeh is right. Who are you going to trust? His words, his promises, God's words, or God's promises. And this is the way temptation works. If we're going to do a little study of temptation, what temptation is is a promise that somebody or something or you can give yourself something that only God can actually provide for you. That's what temptation is, is that you could have something going around God that God has said in his word only he can give you. He's promised to his people that he alone is God and that if they will worship him, he will be their God, he will protect them, they will be his people. But over and over and over again, what the Israelites do is they say, oh no, we're in trouble. We need to look for somebody else to guarantee our safety. This is temptation to a T. Part of our frustration in our Christian lives is we hold God accountable for promises that he never made and we forget the promises that he has made and exchange them for other promises that are trying to give us something that only God can give. Take a, a, a general example. We, we hold God accountable all the time for taking away the bad things in our lives. He never promised that. Never. In fact, he promises the opposite in the Bible. Jesus says, this is not one of his most popular sayings, but he says, in this world, you will have trials. In the New Testament, Peter says, look, it's not uncommon for you to be facing trials like you are. Anybody who calls on the name of God will be persecuted. That's a promise. You can take that to the bank. That is a a promise that's easy to trust if you've lived for more than a a couple of days. So the promise of the Rob Shackey is, I'm going to make your life great. Our frustration is we hear a promise like that and we say, isn't that what God's supposed to be? Isn't God supposed to be taking all the bad things out of my life? That's not what God promised. What God has promised, and there was a great article at Desiring God on this this week. Uh, 
One of the things that God has promised is not to take away the bad things in your life. It's to be with you through the bad things in the life in your life. One of the quotes of Eugene Peterson I always love is, it's not God's way. He's like, you're, you're in a fight, and it's not God's way to stop the fight. That's not, what, that's not what God does. His way is to stand by the fighter. It's not his way to stop the fight. It's his way to stand by the fighter. Here's five promises that we have in the Bible that maybe the Israelites were thinking about in this moment. In Isaiah 41.10, the prophet that's going to speak into the situation later, he says, fear not, for I am with you. Fear not, for I am with you. Not fear not because it's not actually going to be that bad. Not fear not because it's not going to be painful. Not fear not because I'm going to take away everything that's challenging you. Fear not because I'm going to be with you. I'm going to walk with you. In Romans 8.32, I think this is the greatest promise in the entire Bible. And I would, I would argue with you about it, I think. There's all kinds of great promises in Romans chapter 8. You know, it says, for, for those who love God, all things work according to his purpose. That's a great promise. It says in the end of the chapter that uh, nothing in all of creation, height nor depth nor angels or demons or rulers or, or, or life can separate you from the love of God. That's a pretty good promise. Earlier in the chapter, it says, the Spirit intercedes for us in our weaknesses. That's a pretty good promise. But there's a better promise in Romans chapter 8. If you're you're following along, look at Romans chapter 8, verse 31. He says, what should we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Listen to this. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not now give us all things? That is an amazing promise. If God gave his son up for you, how could you ever think he won't give something good to you? I think that's one of the greatest promises in the Bible. Is God's, it's not a matter of God being short on change or short on power or anything like that. He gave up the most valuable thing in the entire universe for you. How could anything else compare to that? How do you think he won't give you everything if he gave you his son? In Matthew 28, verse 20, Jesus' last words to the Israelites or to his disciples, he says, I will be with you always even to the end of the age. There's this really cool piece in in Matthew. In the beginning of the book, it says that the name of the child that the the angel's telling them about will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. God coming to dwell with his people on the earth. That's in the first chapter of Matthew. Then in the last chapter of Matthew, Jesus fulfills that, and he says, I've been given authority in heaven and on earth. Go to all the nations, and as you go, remember, I will be with you always. He is Emmanuel that day, today, forever. Psalm 50 verse 15 says the Lord will stand by you and deliver you. Philippians 4 19 says God will supply every single need of yours. Now this is one we have to study because the guy writing this is about to be put to death. You're like what do you mean supply every need of yours? In 2 Timothy he says even in my trial when nobody stood by me and strengthened me, even though the trial didn't go very well, the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. For Paul, there's something, we can't get off on this because this, this is a good tangent, but we're not going to chase it. He says, there's something better than being delivered from death. 
having the presence of the Lord in your life is better than that kind of deliverance. So the Israelites are reminding themselves of the promise of God, and you and I both have a chance every day. What promise are you going to trust? Do you know the voice of God in your life? Do you know how to distinguish? Because a lot of you, when, when I asked you, when's the last time you found yourself in a fight? I hope you said this morning or yesterday. Because you find yourself in a battle of words every day. The promises of the world versus the promises of God. The temptations of the flesh versus the promises that God, those who walk by the Spirit, put to death the flesh, will live. You find yourself in this moment every single day. And the question is, do you know the voice and the promises of God? You know, I've got one of those Google Homes at my house. I don't know if you guys have those, they're those little speakers. And they've gotten so good with the technology now that you can just say, hey, Google, do this. And it, most of the time, will actually do it. But the cool thing about it is they've gotten the, the software so good on these things that when you get it, you talk to it for a little bit. You say all these phrases that it wants you to say. And from that moment on, it only responds to your voice. Isn't that cool? So it's really fun to uh, my roommates, my brother, if he says, hey, Google, it does nothing. It doesn't even light up, doesn't even listen, doesn't even recognize anybody's talking to it. And then I say, hey, Google, it lights up, it does its spinny thing, it asks me what I want, it will do anything that I want it to do, play music, turn off on the lights. I mean, it is amazing because it knows my voice. And it doesn't listen to anybody else's voice. That's the perfect picture of a Christian. Do you know God's voice? And are you susceptible to listening to other voices? Don't listen to other voices. Don't listen to other promises. Don't listen to your own voice when it contradicts the word of God. Be sensitive to the voice of God. The third thing that we see as we wrap up this story is this is a battle of prayer. It's a battle of words, it's a battle of promises, and it's a battle of prayer. After the Rabshakeh gives his speech, Hezekiah, it says in 2 Kings 19, verse 14, Hezekiah received the letter from the word of the messengers, and he read it. And look at what Hezekiah does. He went up to the house of the Lord, and he spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, O God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are God, you alone. Of all the kingdoms of the earth, you made the heavens and the earth. Incline your ear, O Lord. Hear, open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste to nations in their lands and have cast other gods into the fire, for they were not gods. They were the work of men's hands, wood and stone, and they were destroyed. Now, O Lord our God, save us, please, from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth might know that you, O Lord, are God alone. The first thing that Hezekiah does is not rebut the Rabshakeh. That's a common temptation. We hear somebody challenging God. Our first response is, well, we need, we, need to, we need to rebut them. We need to actually prove why they're wrong. We need to give a response. That's not what Hezekiah does. He actually tells his people on the wall, don't say anything. 
Whatever they say, don't say anything back to them. We're going to pray before we respond. He doesn't quote statistics back at the Rob Shack about the amount of cavalrymen they actually have and how many soldiers they actually have. He doesn't engage in, in, in theologically veiled shouts of, nuh-uh, back over the wall. That's not what he does. He does what the proper response to blasphemy always is. He looks to God to vindicate his own name. He looks to God to vindicate his own name. The battle of words leads to a battle of promises, which, if we're going to win, should lead to a battle of prayer. Are we going to go to God first, or are we going to go to our earthly resources first? Are we going to go to God first, or are we going to go to arguments first? Are we going to go to God first, or are we going to go to our own strength first? Pray your temptations into submission. Pray the promises of God into your life. Imagine what would have changed for Eve if she would have done this. So we're back in the garden. We've got a snake and a promise, and we have Eve. And she does not pray. She and Adam do not pray. Remember what they do? They believe the serpent, they take the fruit, and they fall. But imagine if the story had gone a little bit differently. Because it tells you before that that God is walking with them in the garden. He's accessible to them. Imagine if Eve would have said, you know what? This doesn't sound right. And I've never seen a snake before that talks, but that, there's something here that isn't quite right. And imagine if she had gone to God and said, hey, this snake over here, this serpent, is telling us that if we eat this, we'll be like you. What do you think God would have done? He would have protected them. He would have provided for them. He would have told them the truth. He would have vanished away the serpent. He would have protected his garden. He would have restored his people. And yet, we are so confident in that. But when we find ourselves in temptation, do we feel that same way about God? Imagine if Eve, just for a moment, would have gone to God and said, hey, I'm being tempted here. Will you help me? All of a sudden, yeah, God would have helped them. He would have, he would have done everything for them. But, but when we're tempted, most of the time we do not want to talk to God in those temptation moments. Maybe some of us believe in those moments that God wants us to do it on our own. Or maybe, he, maybe we think that in our mind God is giving us a test to see if we're going to be faithful to him. But the same thing is true for us. If you're tempted and you run to God, don't you think that he would protect you? Don't you think that he would provide for you? Don't you think that he would speak truth to you? It's a battle of prayer. Hezekiah goes to the Lord. Who you trust is revealed by who you run to in these battles. Do you run to yourself or do you run to God? Do you run to the promises of the world or do you run to God? Spurgeon said in a prayer, Lord, many a Rob Shaka's letter have we read of late. Behold, we bring it into the sanctuary and spread it before the Lord. O Lord God, rebuke the unbelief. Rebuke the skepticism of those who assail both you and your Christ and the gospel of your truth. In the end, God judges Sennacherib. This is great how this story ends. Look with me at chapter 19, verse 30, 35. Isaiah tells him, thus says the Lord, he will deliver you. And he does. In verse 35, that night the angel Lord went out, struck down 185,000 men in the camp of the Assyrians. And the people rose early in the morning and behold, all dead bodies 
Then Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, departed and went home and lived at Nineveh. And look at this. Remember what I said? No detail is wasted here. Verse 37. As he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, Adramelech and Sharazer, his sons, struck him down with the sword and escaped to the land of Ararat. And had on his son, reigned in his place. There's irony at the end of this story. It's almost as if God is showing us through the story of Hezekiah, whose God did you say wasn't strong enough to protect you? Who who wasn't able to protect his people from trouble? Turns out it was the Assyrian's God, not the God of the Bible. When we find ourselves in a battle, we trust in God's word, we trust in God's promise, and we go to him in prayer. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word, Lord, that is applicable in every circumstance. Lord, help us to know your voice, not to listen to the Rob Shackas of the world, but to trust in your promises for us. Lord, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.